Psalm 25, if you would read with me, let's, uh, let's just begin by, by uh, reading the first three verses. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in thee I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do let not let my enemies exult, exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause, will be ashamed. Um, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What is, what is our soul, after all? I mean, I, I walked over here tonight, and I, I passed a, a car in the parking lot that is titled Soul. A Kia Soul. Surely that means something, right? What is, what is the soul? Well, um, this, this scripture, um, this, this use of this word in this place uh, comes from a, the Hebrew word uh, that means breath. And it has to do with the idea of even our very being. Uh, it's, it's the immaterial part of a person. That which um, I think many of us would say goes on living when this tent that we live in passes away or dies. It's that part of us that continues to live. It's, it's, the, it's the seat of emotion. It's the seat of desire. It's the place of the will. It's honestly, if you sit back and, and analyze who we are as individuals, in many respects, it makes up a good part of what we identify as ourselves. Um, it's interesting. We are made in the image of God, right? That's what the Lord says. We know the Lord to be revealed as a holy trinity in the scripture, right? If you stop and think about it, in his image, we are also a trinity. We are body, soul, and spirit. And they are inextricably linked to one another. They are distinct, but they are part and parcel of one another as well. Now, our body is very tangible. It's, it's, it's touchable, right? Our, our uh, soul... Most of the time we say it, it, it is our mind, will, and emotions. It's the intangibles that relate to our life. And the spirit, the spirit is, I believe, the image of God. It is our connection to God, God's life, because God himself is spirit. In John chapter 4, uh, Jesus meets the woman at the well, right? And in speaking to her, he, he says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There has to be an identity connection for there to be honest, true worship of the Lord. And that happens in our spirit. Now, 
we can lift our souls to God, our, our mind, will, and emotions. We can, with our mind, we can, um, we can lift our mind to the Lord when we need understanding, right? We can lift our will when we need help with motivation. How many of you have prayed that prayer? Lord, help me want to. Some of us, right? Yeah, that's, that's, a, real, that's a real thing. And our emotion. Uh, Lord, help me with my feelings because my feelings are, I recognize that they are out of control or maybe my feelings aren't pleasing to you and I need your help with that, Lord. So I lift my soul to the Lord. And this, the psalmist is bringing all of who he is to the Lord when he says that. And we can too. And the idea of lifting our soul to the Lord is, is that of, um, that is a, one of bringing an offering, if you will. I offer myself to you, Lord. I give you my soul that you might uh, teach me, that you might admonish me, that you might direct me. Um, it is, it is uh, in many respects, an act of sacrifice as well. Because, um, because especially in our culture, we have this, this idea that um, these things, my mind, will, and emotions belong to me, right? And how dare you try to sway me? Why, how dare you try to, to uh, move me in, in one way or the other? It, they're mine. But when we lift our souls to the Lord, we're saying, Lord, I'm giving you myself. So there's a sense of sacrifice involved there. And finally, I think we could say there's a sense of surrender there. So the psalmist is surrendering himself to the Lord. Um, let's go on. Make, oh, excuse me, uh, Psalm 86. Um, Psalm 86. Uh, verse 3 through 5. I'm sorry I don't have us, uh, the opportunity for us to read together tonight, but you can write this down, take it home, study it if you want. But a related scripture, Psalm 86 is verses 3 through 5. The psalmist writes, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant. <laughs> What's he asking the Lord to do there? He's saying, deal with my emotions, Lord, right? Make glad the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I yield my soul to you. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Psalm 143, verse 8. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust you. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you, I lift up my soul. Teach me, he says, teach me in the way I should walk. It speaks of, that speaks of the will, does it not? Lord, help me, help me determine not only how, but where I should walk. Verse two, oh my God, in you or in thee I trust, do not let me, be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. I trust you, Lord. 
I trust you. That word trust means to hide for refuge in. It's interesting to me. Uh, it, and it has with it then the confidence that that refuge is secure. It also uh, brings up the, the, the notion that this is something worth hoping for or hoping in. It is absolutely secure. And the end result of that, I love this word, is carelessness. Care-lessness. Without care. That's part of that idea of trusting the Lord. Then he says, then do not let me be ashamed. Uh, this, this ancient word uh, has the connotation of don't let me go pale. Don't let me go pale, Lord. Um, in other words, that uh, idea of, of going pale says, I have no answer. Don't let me be ashamed. Verse 20, if you would look at verse 20 and 21 here, we have a, a, a similar thought. Here at the end of this chapter, he says, guard my soul and deliver me and do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you. That's that word trust. I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Shame is most often associated with the lack of integrity. When you think about it, it is the loss of face, is it not? It's the going pale, if you will. It, it is that loss of face that says, that, that says, uh, I have been caught in this position of not being integrous. In other words, what I said I would do, I have not done, and you've caught me in it. Or I have, I have said that I am this, but what I'm doing uh, does not reflect that reality. So there's a lack of integrity, and, and that is... That is this context of shame. And so the psalmist here again is saying, let me not be ashamed. He's saying, let me walk in integrity. Let me walk in a manner that uh, bears out that my life is, is truthful in every respect. Verse 3. Indeed, none of those who wait for thee will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. I love this word, indeed. I, I used to use it too much. It's, it's there for emphasis, isn't it? Indeed. Indeed. This is uh, the, the truth. A statement of those who wait for you. None of those who wait for you. That word wait uh, 
equals confidence or reassurance. Uh, it's, it's, in, the, in the Hebrew, the, the, the ancient root of this word has to do with binding together. Um, it's, it's interesting. Perhaps it has even the connotation of twisting, binding together, and um, to, to, to collect the various pieces and connect them together. I will wait for you. None of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Um, Isaiah 40, uh, verse 31, is a, is a uh, passage or a, a verse that many of us, I think, know very well. It simply says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Yeah, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Yeah, and this, this idea of those who wait upon the Lord is this same word. I love this illustration uh, of this word. It is as though a vine collects itself and twists around a trellis. That imagery to me is beautiful. Those who wait on the Lord is not, not those who are, okay, God, you should be showing up right about now. Um, no, it's those who cling to the Lord, those who wrap themselves around him. And that imagery is, is indeed what we have here. None of those who wrap themselves around you will be ashamed. Isn't that a beautiful reading of that? And it, it, is that, it is that sense of clinging to that is, is the, the point of what it means to not be ashamed. Because clinging to the Lord gives us the confidence of his integrity, does it not? Yeah, we lean on and we partake in and we, we even allow his integrity to become part of us. That is that waiting on him, that clinging to him. Now, the second half, those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Deal treacherously, to act deceitfully, especially in regard to relationships, to be deceitful in, in say, covenants, we know uh, the marriage covenant is one of those covenants, right? We have lots of other covenants that we ha make as, as people who live in the world and connect with others and decide to live together. Many times we have covenants. Covenants. How, how many of you ha live in a place where there are CCNRs? Don't you love them? Yeah. Well, you know what that is? That's a covenant. That's an agreement. And, and, uh, and what the psalmist is saying here, those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Those who, those who transgress those covenants, those who deal deceitfully with those covenants um, will be ashamed. Now, um, that, that word, deal treacherously, 
uh, again, I, I love the, the, to dig into these, the, the etymology of these words because they uncover meaning. And one of the things here that is spoken of is that, that they act covertly. They act in secret. And they, they, um, they pillage. There's a great word, pillage. They, they go in and they destroy. And they destroy for their, their own gain. And that's part and parcel of this idea of, of deceitful actions. Um, Oswald Chambers, uh, many of you know I, I love to read My Utmost for His Highest on a daily basis. just so happens that, um, that on the 10th, on Monday, um, this was the beginning of his writing. We imagine we would all be right if a big crisis arose. But the big crisis will only reveal the stuff we are made of. It will not put anything into us. If God calls us, of course, I will rise to the occasion, we say. You will not unless you have risen to the occasion in the workshop, unless you have been the real thing before God there in that, and he's speaking of the workshop as that anonymous place where he is he is teaching you um, in a in a methodical sort of way, and nobody's watching. It's a private place. If you are not doing the thing that lies nearest, because God has engineered it, when the crisis comes, instead of being revealed as fit, you will be revealed as unfit. Crisis always reveals character. And that's kind of, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about character. Um, Those who deal treacherously are those without character. Those who wait upon the Lord, who cling to him, are those of character. Now, verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Teach me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. David offers his soul here. There's a, this is a new section, and this is the, the, the application, if you will, of, of what has simply what has been talked about previously here in terms of crisis. And it's interesting to me that, that crisis very often is the uh, that's kind of the genesis of faith or obedience for a lot of us, isn't it? Um, Many times we find ourselves in trouble, and that is the turning point of our life. We find ourselves up against a difficulty that we cannot get out of. And it's in that crisis that we cry out to the Lord and, and say, I give up, God. I give up. I'll do whatever you ask. And you know what he does when he hears that? 
He takes you seriously. And he begins to work in our lives in such a way as to discipline us as his own children. And he will bring us to that place where we will indeed be fully submitted to him. Um, That becomes our covenant with him, if you will. And it's based more on his integrity than it is on ours. And so that crisis is the beginning or the genesis of our, of our discipleship relationship with God many times. So here in, in verse 4 and 5, we have the application of, of, of what it means to be a disciple. Make me know your way. Show me, Lord. Teach me, Lord. Lead me, Lord. That is, that is the heart of what it means to be a disciple. The word know here is the word yada. Some of you um, may be familiar with that word. It is um, uh, the Hebrew word for to know. And it has multiple levels of meaning. But in the end, it has to do, um, it has to do with, with intimacy. It has, has to do with um, uh, learning and knowing, taking in um, by, by observation, by recognition, by instruction, and even by punishment. It's learning. It is, it is that, that, uh, that process of, of acquisition of knowledge. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Isaiah writes in chapter 55, For my thoughts, the Lord speaking here, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How in the world can we connect with him then? If that's the case, well, it is precisely by this this acquisition that we might know him, that we might know him. Yada is that word, and it has to do, it is the knowledge that comes in intimacy with him. Verse 4, the second half is teach me your paths. That, uh, this word teach here, I love it. Teach me your paths. I, I think, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm wondering if the imagery here is herding goats. Have you ever seen anybody herd goats? It's different than herding sheep. There is a, there is a, uh, a goading process at work with the, 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 uh, the direction with a rod or a staff that says, go this way, go that way, go this way. You need to lead sheep, but goats are a little different. You can herd them and you do so by directing them and you do so with a goad. Or, uh, it is a, 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 the word goad, yeah, it's precisely that. Getting stuck in the ribs sometimes and directed that way. And, and that's what this word, uh, this word means. Uh, teach me your paths. 
What, what in the world does that mean? Teach me your paths. Well, what is a path? It is that well-trodden road. It is that, that, that way in which the Lord walks. Not just how he walks, but where he walks. It's his mannerisms. It's his path. It's the, 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 the place he comes and goes on. Teach me your paths, Lord. Help me understand that. Help me understand not only how you walk, but where you walk. And, and make me familiar with that. God's ways, then, are only, only become our ways when we walk in them. Think about it. God's ways only become our ways when we walk in in his ways. Jesus is the way, right? He is the way we walk in Jesus. Now, what in the world does that mean? That means our lives need to, to um, yes, reflect his character, reflect his thoughts, reflect his grace, reflect his goodness, and his judgment, his, his discernment, all of that is part of walking in his ways. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Those are Jesus' words, and that's, those are his words to us. This is what it means to be his disciple. The Apostle Paul um, was, I have to say, was um, so confident in his walk that he invited people to imitate him. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Imitators of me. That's, that's really what a disciple is. A disciple is one who imitates his master. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Lead me in your truth. Again, this word lead is connected to a path. It is uh, it means to tread, to tread, or to walk. Um, and it's, it's in the doing, it's in the going. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the, the Shema, many of you may be familiar with that. It speaks of as, as you go in the way, be teaching. That's the Lord's model. For, for passing along his, his um, wisdom, his direction, his correction. 
It's in the way, in the walking, in the going. That is the model of the Lord's teaching. And that's exactly what is being spoken of here. Lead me in your truth. The word lead speaks of that going down the path. Now, biblical truth is truth um, truth that must be obeyed. Truth that must have action associated in response to it. Otherwise, it simply becomes philosophy. And we, we um, I, in college, I, uh, I started out with a, um, a Bible major and then and got two years in and was so itchy to get in ministry that I, I, uh, I took on a, a youth pastoral position. And decided I was going to, I was called as a halftime youth pastor. I don't know if you know, but if you're a halftime youth pastor, you get paid halftime for doing full-time work. That's just the way it is, okay? And, and I decided, okay, I'm going to be a halftime youth pastor, and so I'm going to study three-quarter time. So I, I continued uh, working on on my Bible degree, but I, I, I had grown up with a friend whose father was the professor of philosophy at West Texas State University. And, and um, some of you might be thinking, West Texas State University, are you serious? That's like cowboy philosophy, right? <laughs> you know? No, it wasn't. It was the real deal. And, and we used to have just amazing conversations about uh, about logic and and about thinking through things and and connecting this thought to that thought and and so on and so forth. So I decided I you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up a minor in philosophy while I'm I'm at it. You know I lasted two semesters in that philosophy thing uh, pursuit, and you know why. I got so sick and tired of simply asking questions and not getting any answers. <laughs> That's what philosophy is all about. It's, about. it's about postulating questions and not delivering answers. And, and so the Lord turned me around on that, and I was, I'm grateful for that. That whole rabbit trail is about the idea that when we study God's word, the intention here is not that we should look at it as great ideas and useful philosophy. No, it's designed for us to obey. And in the obeying, God delivers to us the depth of communion with him that goes back to this idea of knowing him. It's in the obeying. Um, several years ago, um, I, I studied for a, uh, to, to lead a, a, a marriage couples, couples retreat. And, and in the process, I discovered that God's, I, I honestly think, I know there are some who have this issue with this word love language, but I discovered that God's love language is obedience. 
Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. That's how he knows that we love him. And it's also how he loves us. Because in the doing of those commandments, he, he is working his life in and through us. It's a glorious thing. So all of this is to say, um, lead me in your truth and teach me, verse 5. And, and that teaching, that leading must lead to obedience. Matthew in chapter 7 um, says these words that have, uh, I think for many, leave us scratching our heads. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons and in your name, perform miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, it's about doing the will of God that, that codifies or, or uh, consummates our relationship with him. That's an important biblical principle as we walk, as we begin our walk with Christ and till the day we enter into eternity with him. It is about walking with him in obedience. The Apostle James writes in the first chapter of his epistle that um, this concept as well in, a, in these words, and they're very familiar Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That word delude means to, to uh, completely uh, live in an in a, in imaginary place. To delude yourself. To, it is delusion to say that you love God, and yet you do not do what he commands you. To say that you are his disciples and do not do what he says. That's delusion. James says, be doers of the word, not just hearers. Verse 6, we hear a plea for mercy here in Psalm 25. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, Lord, for your goodness sake, O Lord. Remember, remember your compassion and your loving kindness. This, this word, remember, is kind of curious when we start talking about who God is. Um, should God have to be encouraged to remember? I mean, can God forget? Can he? 
Some people up here are shaking their head, and I heard a yeah back there. So we're setting up some controversy right here, right? Right here and now, right? Jeremiah 31. I love this. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. For those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and his, each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So can God forget? Yeah. Thanks be to his name. He can and he does. According to your compassion. That word carries with it the connotation of the womb. As a mother cherishes her unborn child. That's the compassion that is speaking, that is spoken of here. It is tender, tender love. The word loving kindness is, is uh, very curious because it, it's, it's two words smashed together, isn't it? It has this idea of favor attached to it. Have you ever, have you ever heard someone pray, Lord, let your favor rest on someone? That's enti- entirely what we're talking about here. Let your loving kindness be expressed in their life. Let your favor be manifest there. It, it is... It is the mixture of kindness and and mercy and goodness. Psalm 103, verse 11 through 14. For as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgression from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And then verse 17. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts and Do them. Verse 8, we hear the confession of a disciple. David turns from directly praying to meditating here on these truths. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. 
and he teaches the humble his ways. Hmm. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who does the Lord instruct? Who does the Lord lead? Take a look at it. Look at it. Who does he instruct? Who does he lead? Sinners and the humble, right? Sinners and the humble. He is good and upright by disciplining the errant and the broken rather than the proud and the powerful who are unwilling to receive his teaching. God can only disciple the sinner and the humble because his paths are loving kindness and truth. Listen, sinners must have received mercy to give mercy. Wow. Only the humble and the broken can receive the truth. Thus, God's ways are open to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. They have been bound to him by his grace and directed to obey his will. Verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For your name's sake, O Lord, that the Lord would be extolled for who he is. He is gracious. He is filled with loving kindness. For his name's sake, Pardon my iniquity. Verse 12 through 15, we see the character of a disciple. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. His eyes are continually toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Who fears the Lord? I have to say, this is an essential character or characteristic of a disciple. One who has a healthy fear of the Lord. In Mark chapter 4, um, on the weekend, just several weeks ago, we, we, uh, we read and learned about the story of uh, Jesus walking on the water and then calming the, star, or calming the storm. That's what it was. He, was. he calmed the storm. He got in the boat. And what was the, the, uh, the disciples' response? They became very much afraid. That's what the scripture says. They became very much afraid. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? It's reverence. It's awe. It's honest fear. Acknowledging God's power. Acknowledging God's authority. Verse 13 
His soul will abide in prosperity. In other words, his soul will abide in good, in the widest sense of that word. That means that means he will be in the Lord's favor. It means he will experience, he will be gracious, he will be joyful, he will be kind, he will be loving, he will be even merry, if you will, happy, pleasant. The secret of the Lord, verse 14, is a curious phrase, isn't it? What is this secret? This secret has to do um, with intimacy. It's inward counsel. Another word that is often used here is counsel. And it is, um, it is the counsel given to those in an inner circle. That's the secret of the Lord. Is for the, and it's for those who fear him. And he will make them know his covenant. It's curious. There will be new unveilings of of the Lord's truth in our lives. The Spirit will speak to us in in that sharing that secret counsel with us. But it will always, 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 if, if it is the Lord's counsel, it will always be in line with his covenant, be in line with his word. Does God speak his counsel to us? Yeah. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13. For God, for, for to us, God revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Wow. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. That's the counsel of the Apostle Paul, who knows that, who, who we know walked with the Lord, and he is definitely saying, yes, the Spirit speaks to us. But anything that the Spirit speaks to us must be consistent with his word in every detail. Verse 15, my eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I have to say these words, my eyes are continually toward the Lord. That's the key to being his disciple. That's the key. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. We're coming back here to this season of crisis, if you will. And David is, is saying, Lord, deliver me. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. 
Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in thee. Let integrity upright and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. We're instructed by the Lord and willing to be discipled by him. David returns here to this point of crisis that he started with in this psalm. He fully exposes himself here. And that's part and parcel of being his disciple as well. God's mercy and truth is given to him as, as he, or he is asking for God's truth and mercy to be given to him. And it's possible that this is the deeper work that God desires to do both in David and in us. And the response of the disciple, the last verse, redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. It's interesting that, that the focus suddenly changes here. This psalm starts and comes to a conclusion with this idea of crisis, rescue, and all of that. And what is that focused on? It's focused on David. It's focused on me. But here in this last verse, we see this return, or this, this, this turn, if you will. Redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. Suddenly the focus changes and it goes outward to God's great purpose. And his great purpose is redemption. Not just for us as individuals, but for all of humanity. 